It was right before finals season, and I was walking to the little coffee shop down in the village when a small black car pulled up beside me, and a voice said, Will Hughes? Yes, I said. And that was when two men in coats got out of the car, grabbed me, placed a bag over my head, and shoved me in the back seat. We drove for about 20 minutes, and during that time, I said nothing. There wasn't really anything I cared to say, but at one point, one of them said... I bet you're wondering where we're taking you. Uh, not particularly. Or why we've taken you. No, not really. I, I assume it has something to do with the Katzleborgia incident. I'm betting that Tristan Robeck sent you. And they were quiet for a minute, and I said, I'm right, aren't I? Shut up, said one of them. And so I did. Sometime later, the car stopped, and the men ushered me out into a large building. Finally, when I was well and truly inside, one of them pulled off my hood, and I found myself staring face to face with Tristan Robeck. Boo, he said. Yeah, I knew it was you, I told him. It's true, said one of my kidnappers. He did. Oh. Well, fuck. You're no fun then, Will. Take a seat. And so I sat down. We were in what looked like a small conference room in an office space. I wasn't really sure where, since he had shut down the Columbus Villa Americana Processing Center after his dad had passed. Do you know where we are? Tristan asked. Well, uh, I'm assuming it's some kind of office, maybe a research facility. He scowled and said, stop guessing things. I looked him over. The past several months had aged him horribly. His hair had grown long and greasy and was tied up in a sloppy man bun. He had a long beard that went all the way down to his chest and made him look almost like Rasputin, and he wore a yellow tracksuit. As a matter of fact, he told me, we are in a small research facility that I set up, a kind of pop-up shop for special projects that I'm developing. I always wanted Villa to be more of a maker than a mover. Pop was always a traditionalist. That's why I'm glad that I'm in charge. Younger blood, newer vision. Mm. Mm. Well, you don't look so good, Tristan. Are you sick? No. That's the best part. I'm healthier than I've ever been. I don't eat anymore. I drink lemon, cayenne pepper water eight times a day and a protein shake at night. I don't make stool anymore, Will. My body has evolved past the need to make stool. Well, you look very tired, I told him. I don't have to sleep anymore. I have evolved past the need for sleep. I get more done that way, okay? It's much more productive to go into my yurt if I am tired and take a small, rapid eye nap, all right? I learned that from some bros at Coachella this year. It was very lit. That's nice, I told him. It gets better, he said. All right, I don't get sick anymore at all. Every morning, I have a large, sick man cough on me to build up a natural immunity Two germs. Don't you see, Will? This is how the human body was supposed to look at its peak physical and mental condition. Well, uh, it's, it's certainly a lot. Yes, well, I have no more illusions of immortality, Will. All right, I know I'm not going to live forever, and that is why I've decided my next move will be to have a child of my very own. 
a child. Oh my yes. That's why we're introducing Villa Americana Platinum, a ladies only tier to Villa Americana's shipping plan where for only $80 a year, women can receive a jar of my seed. Oh, good god, is is that popular? Oh no. No, no, we're having marketing meetings to discuss what can be done. As it turns out, I'm not legally allowed to offer it out to employees as a Christmas bonus, so regardless, we're not here to talk about seed. The door opened, and in stepped Brayden Vandersloot in his full Electroman costume. Ah, right on schedule. Brayden, sit down. And Brayden sat down next to me. So, said Tristan... I was in my magnificent exposed brick loft trying to enjoy some video footage of my employees eating Thanksgiving dinner at home, when what should come on the news but footage of a man-sized plane shooting lightning bolts down on Katzleborgia, incinerating an entire insurgency camp before my very eyes. And I thought to myself, huh, how odd, how peculiar, I should have a chat with my bro Brayden and see what he knows. Come to find out that not only does he confess to this incident, he also says that he did it, Will, on your order. I had absolutely nothing to do with the Katzleborgia incident. Then perhaps you can explain why I have the international community breathing down my back? Rumors... Travel fast, Will, and they are starting to speculate. All right? Villa Americana is not about war crimes. It is about wholesomeness. It's about family values. Well, in all fairness, said Brayden, you always said it's about disruption and challenging the status quo of boomer capitalist ideals. Well, yes, said Tristan. Obviously, it's about those things. I mean, everybody wants to cause disruption. God knows that I want to cause disruption, but you cannot disrupt safely if you don't play by a very specific set of rules, Brayden, all right? If I roll over on you, I could have you standing on trial at The Hague tomorrow. Tristan, (laughs) you don't understand, okay? There's a method to my madness. A few months back, I ran into Will here at a grocery store, and he said some things that got me thinking. Now, I took a long, hard look at myself, right? I used to be this measly runt with IBS, and then you came in. Villa Americana said that I was worth something inside of this suit. Brayden Vandersloot, okay? He's got nothing to go home to but his father's investment company. But now Electroman... Okay, the world is his oyster, and that is why I haven't taken this suit off since the day I was fitted for it. And really, that made sense. There was quite a palpable stench. But then in comes, okay, Prince William over here, invalidates all that, points out correctly that I'm not out here fighting crime, solving world issues, invested in military conflicts, right? I'm doing kids' shows, and book signings, and promos for exercycles. I don't use exercise bikes. They make my ass sore. What exactly is your point, Brayden? Electroman, all right? It's, and my point is, Tristan, 
This Cat's Laborgia conflict, it was so close to the breaking point, all right? It just needed someone to come in and just, just give a little push, all right? So that's what I did. I did what I was born to do, and I blew up those fucking Borgs. I mean, come on! They're not freedom fighters. They're terrorists standing in the way of prime United States interest in Cat's Low Oil. And by oil, of course, he meant olive oil. Katz Laborgia is one of the world's largest exporters of premium-grade olive oil. The world has been dominated by pencil-pushing pussies for too long now. We have stayed in gridlock. We have stayed in this stupid pretense of peace. War, Tristan. Think about what a war could do. For Villa Americana, especially a proxy war. I mean, I probably upped your share prices double. What will happen, do you think, when people find out what you did? Because right now, thankfully, the United Nations assumes that the Katzlows bombed the Borgs and have formally censured them. Two more censures, and they'll get a written warning. But after that, all bets are off. Now, the Katzlows are denying it. And I'm not going to say I didn't cover my ass if they find out it was you. So what does that mean? And Tristan turned to me and said, Will, how much of this is true, do you think? I, I mean, so far as I know, I think all of it's true. I mean, I did run into him in the store, but that's about it on my part. I believe you, said Tristan. I really don't think you care enough about this to lie. I really don't. I really didn't. <sighs> Brayden, he said. It's over. All right. All of it is over. The TV shows are over. The books are over. The exercycles, sayonara, bye-bye, see you later. All right. It's over. All of it is just over. Well, uh, come on. <laughs> you can't just cancel Electroman, Tristan. It's just not done. I, I'm an institution at this company. Yes, you could have been. If you'd just been willing to be a performer, to play ball, you could have been. But I didn't want to perform, Tristan. I wanted to act. Don't you understand that? The time has come for someone to take action, and that someone had to be me, all right? It's sad to hear you say these deluded things, Brayden. I really thought you were smarter, but clearly I overestimated your intellect. I mean, I thought you realized what superheroes are for. They're not for lifting the sun into the sky. Rah, rah, no. And they're not for raining bombs down on civilians either. No, 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 no. Your job, all you ever had to do was stand there and be the perfect all-American boy and smile and take photos. And that could have been enough. It, do you know why it is that Americans love superheroes, Brayden? It's because they love the idea of strength, the idea of flashy showmanship. They love the idea of being stronger than everyone else without having to actually get their hands dirty. They love the idea of being morally correct, not questioning their own morals or ethics, seeing the best part of themselves, and never needing to worry if they can sleep soundly at night with their choices, because the average American likes to think as little as possible. 
And here, I mean, you just fucked all that up. You have directly instigated World War III. And there's no glory in that because, all right, everyone remembers Archduke Fernando. But no one remembers the name of the guy that killed him. And I said, Gavrio Principe, shut up, Will. You fucked it up. Easiest gig in the world. And you fucked it up. Because you got your feelings hurt. I'm sorry. Effective immediately. Electroman does not exist. All right, you will be stripped of your suit and powers. You will be terminated from payroll. And believe you me, all the public ever needs to know about this is that you suffered from exhaustion. And we will never speak of it again. That's a good catch-all. I mean, that's what movie stars say when they have to go to rehab. You can't do this to me, he said. And he raised a palm at me and said, If you try and do this, I'll kill Will. There was this electric sound, and the lights in the room began to flicker. But Tristan said, Oh, please, like I'm going to lose sleep after having him dumped in a ditch a few states over. No. Braden sighed and pointed his palm at Tristan instead. But Tristan didn't blink. Do it, he said. The lights flickered hard for a moment, and then they sputtered. And the humming died, and Brayden slumped down to his knees, and Tristan said, Oh, right. But then I should mention, there's a built-in safety feature in the suit that prevents you from doing harm to any Villa Americana employee. Sorry, Bray. He reached into his pocket and took out a small remote, on top of which there was a red button. He pressed it, and electric lights sputtered around Braden Vandersloot, and then the suit melted away, and he was left slumped on the floor in a baggy t-shirt and athletic shorts. Without the suit, he was skinny. A twig, practically. His skin was pocked and covered in pimples, and his hair grew rigid and wispy. He slumped on the floor and said, Oh, now you may notice... A stunning need to move your bowels, since the suit won't be doing that for you anymore. Tristan motioned to one of the men that had kidnapped me and said, Take him outside, have him Ubered somewhere, I don't really care where. And the man nodded and scooped Brayden off the floor. Tristan, he said, you better watch your back, because there's nothing to fear more than a man who has nothing left. But the door closed before he could finish the threat. Tristan sighed and said, well, that was a shame. A lot of PR money on that one, but... Oh, well. Will, I'm sorry. I've been a terrible host. Would you like some cayenne pepper water? Or maybe a Sazerac? No, thank you. Rochelle, make Will a Sazerac. There was a mechanized beeping sound, and then a hole appeared in the table. A glass of golden brown cocktail was pushed out of it. I sighed and took a sip. It's good, I said. Of course it is. It's real absinthe. Well, uh, I'm sorry about Electro Man, Tristan. I suppose you'll have to cancel the TV show now. Oh no, he said. <laughs> That's no bother, really. We were already planning three spin-offs about side characters that had three lines. Villa will always land on its feet. Yeah, I notice, I said. Do you mind if I leave now, or do you have more monologues planned? He smirked and said, Well, can a guy just... Reach out to have a networking sesh with his good buddy Will? <laughs> Come on, man, I didn't kidnap you just to interrogate that idiot. I could do that fine on my own. I just wanted to show you something, all right? Because a little birdie told me that you may have found a little birdie on campus. Who, Frank? How did you hear about him? 
Ambrose and Beatrix von Crump are board members here. They're good people. I understand they tried to buy the bird from you. Yeah, they did. I've actually spent the last semester working with Jess to try and stop that from happening. Well, I imagine that's very fulfilling work, but I also understand that Ms. Vi has been on campus this semester. I bet she would buy that bird from you. Yes, I imagine she would. Are you going to try and buy him too? Well, I'd like to put my hat in the ring. Believe me, Will, you're not going to get a better offer than me. All right, I could clone that bird, make hundreds or thousands of copies of the bird, virtually recreate the species from the ground up, and sure, maybe we'd have to cull a few of them and, you know, use them for food slash fashion purposes, but ultimately, I think it would be a net gain for the species, Will, wouldn't you say? I didn't know that Villa Americana was so invested in food, Tristan. Well, I think you'd better come with me, he said. And so I followed him out of the room and down a long, winding, white hallway. And after a bit, we reached a door. Tristan took out his ID card and swiped it on the door's scanner. It buzzed, and he pushed it open. The inside of the room was dark. We were greeted by the low hum of New Age music, as well as the low din of machinery echoing and bumping together. The lights flicked on, low and vaguely red like a dark room. In the center of the room, there was a crib, a sort of playpen, inside of which a large figure wriggled. What is this? I asked. Will, meet Jerry Alvarez. Jerry was a shift manager at the plant before it regrettably had to shut down. Now, he needed money, so I offered him a paid position with Villa Americana's newest taste sensation, Fjord. It sounds like food, but it's also spelled in a Swedish way, and that reassures people for some reason. So, take a peek. I looked down inside the crib and saw that inside, lying on his back, was a squirming, overweight man, crawling in what looked like a state of agony. His body was covered in large, throbbing, veiny flesh lumps, each the size of ripe cantaloupes. What the fuck is this? I asked. It's okay, said Tristan. It's nothing to be alarmed about, all right? His body is covered with living tumors. But he signed a release. It's true. I did, moaned the man. They pay my family a hundred dollars a day. Tristan took out a knife from his belt, bent down into the crib, and pierced one of the misshapen lumps. It slit open with a... Waterfall of pus oozing onto the crib's bottom, and out of it came a smaller, smoother mass, almost like a carcinogenic sandstone. Tristan picked it up. Ah, ripe, he said. Tristan, what the fuck? No, Will. What the fjord? Did you ever dream that one day we would be able to grow renewable sources of food from our own bodies? Oh, it may be unsightly, but it's completely renewable and sustainable, and it's safe. They're usually benign. And then he held up the mask to the light. It shook slightly. It seemed almost to hiss, to whisper, almost to cry softly. And then Tristan brought it to his mouth and took a large bite out of it. Pus dripped down to the floor, and the thing deflated in his hands. It's so good, he said. It's the only solid I eat now. He offered me the knife. Do you want some fjord? 
Outside, I found Brayden sitting by the curb, smoking a cigarette and shivering in the snow. It was almost pitiable. Well, he said, look at what they've done to me. I've been stripped of my former glory. Yeah, I said. Real fucking sad to see a war criminal brought so low. You don't understand, he said. I mean, yes, I blew up that camp, but I had to. The world needed me. I said nothing. Instead, I took out my phone and ordered an Uber. Can we split a car? He asked. Those goons were supposed to put me in one, but I didn't have any pocket money. Well, that's just going to be your fault, I said. But I have nowhere to go, he said. And it's cold. I shrugged. That sounds like what they call a you problem. I wouldn't have done it if you hadn't set me off, he said. If you'd just been nicer to me, all of those people and houses wouldn't be smoking craters. Why do you care so much what I think of you anyway? I mean, are you obsessed with me? Are you in love with me? What is it? No, I think, I think what it is, is that you're my nemesis. Oh, for God's sake. No, I mean it. Come on, look at us. We're just alike, you and me. You're like my tragic parallel, the Jungian shadow that I have to face in order to realize my true potential. Brayden, I said, get a grip. You are a fully grown adult man. Nemesis? Superhero? Carl Jung? These aren't things that adults should care about. The car pulled up and I got in, but before I did, I took a 10 out of my wallet and offered it to him. Go get a hot meal. Take a shower. Go to therapy. It's over. He looked at me, and there was this odd, faraway look in his eyes. I won't take pity from an evildoer, he said. Electro-man does not waver from justice. Not now. Not ever. I wagged the ten at him again, and he looked at it, tempted. And then he shook his head. I sighed and rolled the window back up. And then... The car jerked forward, and I started my journey back to campus. It was late in the day, and I was hungry for dinner, so I had the driver take me up towards the dining hall. But on the way, I noticed a large crowd of people gathering on a patch of land where the community garden and compost heap had once stood, until recently, when it had been replaced by an oil well. I told the driver to stop, thanked him, and then got out of the car. The crowd was gathered around the oil well, which had now stopped pumping, Dr. Collins stood in the center, with Heloise standing next to him. Please, please, friends, calm yourselves. There's nothing to see here, just a mere act of vandalism. I pushed through the crowd and saw that the oil well had indeed been vandalized. The bridle had been severed and now lay on the ground. The pitman arm had been beaten as though with a sledgehammer, and the prime mover had been completely destroyed. These are all terms I had to look up, by the way. I have no extensive knowledge of oil drilling. Believe you me, said Dr. Collins. This is just a momentary setback. I promise you all there's still plenty of black cold in these here hills. And when we find the scoundrelous saboteurs, I promise they'll be jerry-rigged up the flagpole by their Buster Browns. I'm sure he meant this to be threatening. I think that deep down Dr. Collins knew that he wasn't going to figure out who had sabotaged the oil well. But later that day, as it happened... I got a big hint without trying. I stopped by my mother's office in the psychology department. When I knocked on her door, she was grading finals and wearing her meanest-looking reading glasses as she did. Are you here about the oil well? 
Uh, I wasn't. You've heard about that, have you? Um, what about it exactly? I looked at her for a minute. She looked back down at her papers intently. Uh, anyway, I'm bored, so I came here to bother you. All right, you want to help me grade some finals? Am I allowed to do that? Will, was Galileo allowed to say the Earth was round? I suppose not. No, he wasn't. Now, Papa Squat, how was your day? It was fine. I got kidnapped by Tristan Robeck for a minute. That was kind of exciting. Hmm, that's nice. How's he doing? He looks bad and smells even worse. I don't think he showers anymore. Well, good for him, she said. You know, for a while I thought about trying to denounce him publicly, but then I thought, no, he's a fool. He'll probably just hang himself if he gets enough rope. Anyway, did I tell you the good news? Uh, what good news? Dr. Collins has officially invited me back next semester. I'm not a visiting guest professor anymore, Will. Can you believe it? I'm a visiting associate professor. Isn't it great? It's very good, I told her. Uh, but if you're going to do that, you might want to work on your lying. What do you mean? What have I lied about? You don't know anything about the oil well? Well, I don't know who broke it, she said. Uh-huh. And you do realize, of course, that I never said anyone had broken it, right? Um, anyway, if you're staying, you should get to grading. That night, me and Jess and Noah all had our annual pre-finals dinner, and this time it was at Noah's apartment. We brought Frank with us. Ever since my meeting with Tristan, I hadn't been letting him out of my sight, and it was snowing out, and because Frank isn't accustomed to Midwestern climates, and because he's something of a prima donna, I ended up having to carry him, which is unfortunate. Dodo birds are neither exceptionally small nor exceptionally lightweight, especially if someone... Jess, had the bright idea to let him eat pasta. We got to Noah's. It was dark, snowy. He'd put on some Dave Brubeck and made hot cider with bourbon in it. The TV was playing a muted, subtitled version of A Year Without a Santa Claus. And this is both extremely endearing and oddly discomforting, because every time I think about this movie, I'm reminded that Olivia once told me, very offhandedly, that she'd once had an erotic dream involving Snow Miser. We sat there, eating Noah's more than passable attempt at shrimp scampi, and Jess said, This is nice. It really is, he said. I feel like we haven't hung out just the three of us since we were freshmen. Well, you two were freshmen, said Jess. I was a sophomore. God, that's right, said Noah. That sucks. You've got one semester left, and I feel like we've barely seen each other. Yeah, don't remind me, she said. Well, we all could have made more effort, I said. I mean, yeah, I've enjoyed watching our little Harry Potter trio evolve into more of like a Scooby-Doo gang situation, but I do miss this. And, and I blame myself. Like, Jess and I have been working this entire semester on Frank's project, but I definitely could have made the effort. Yeah, he said, but the lines go both ways. The truth of the matter is, I wasn't in a great place for a lot of this semester. The car crash this spring really fucked with my head, and... I don't know. I think Lorna's helped a lot. I'm sorry I kept that from you and your mom, Will. I wanted to tell you both. It was just a matter of timing. No, I understand. I, I do. Really, like, it's just water under the bridge right now, mostly. Thanks, buddy. Plus, being an RA is actually really hard. I understand why Kevin was such a mean bastard all the time. I hope you're nicer to him, I said. Well, I was, said Noah. But then I caught him trying to time people's showers, so... 
I had to take away the carpet from his room. Shouldn't you be glad about shortened showers? Jess asked. I thought you were Mr. Environment this semester. Yeah, I have been. I think when I was going through everything, it kind of made me feel better to have something to glom onto, but once I started regularly getting laid, it sort of felt less important. Please don't talk about my grandmother like that, I said. Um, excuse me? Are you not the one who talks about my sister like that all the time? Yeah, suggest you do actually, Will. It's honestly disrespectful. I mean, Noah should know better, but it's definitely weird. I don't see the connection, I said. And then I said, can I tell you guys a weird secret? They both looked at each other. I think that weird secrets must be the most valuable kind. I said, so, I don't know how, I don't know why, but I think my mom is the one that destroyed the oil well. What? said Jess. Well, no offense, but... No, your mom wears Patagonia jackets. I don't know what to tell you. I went to see her today and she was acting all weird about it and I can't figure out why. Well, that's not something she'd do. Are you sure? I'm almost positive, I said. I mean, I asked her about it and she started talking in vagaries and, you know, I don't do well with those, but... Yeah. That's crazy, said Jess. What are you gonna do? Uh... Probably nothing, I said. Okay, good, because I was going to say that's actually pretty cool. No, I think so too, I said. I mean, I would never have the guts to do anything like this, but she just went ahead and did it. This is the most I've ever liked her, said Jess. Oh, you're both so sycophantic, said Noah. And we both turned to him. You both think that she did that on her own, don't you? Well, guess what, kids? I had the idea to take that fucker down weeks ago. Noah, said Jess. Bud, something to tell us? You know what, yeah, you got me spilling, I'll spill. Well, at Thanksgiving, your mom told me to come to her office, and we had this long conversation about the oil rig, and I guess seeing your dad must have set her off somehow. I don't know why. I actually thought it went well, but she called me in and said, do you want to destroy the oil well? And I said no, because I was in a happier place than I'd been in this fall. And then she called me a cowardly little cockroach. And I said that she was wrong. And she said that I was a hypocrite. And I said, well, and but anyway, I'm not the best at standing up to mean women. I know, said Jess. And then one thing led to another. And Cut to late last night, we met up, and we put on balaclavas, and we went there with hammers, and we just fucked it all up, and it felt amazing, if you want to know the truth. Good God, I said. I know. I I wanted us to sing Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth by Sparks while we did it. That seemed appropriate, but she didn't, so... Noah, said Jess, I'm proud of you. You stood by your weird convictions and committed a victimless act of eco-terrorism. Do you really think it's cool? He asked. Yeah, it is. It really is, I said. Oh, said a voice from outside. Oh, it certainly is. The doorknob twisted slightly, but Noah had locked it, so the voice said, A little help, Silvu play. I sighed, got up and opened the door. If the listener hasn't guessed by now, it was, of course, Kevin standing there with a disgustingly self-satisfied look on his face. He said, well, 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 it looks like you lobsters have jumped right into my pot. What do you want, you sentient hernia? Jess asked. Jessica, 
please. No need for such rudeness. As you know, Noah recently took the door from my bedroom away, and while this has meant that I get little to no sleep every night over the bright lights and the sounds of the undergraduates fornicating with each other, it has allowed me ample opportunity to listen for secrets, and oh goodness me... I found some. I couldn't help but overhear your treasonous conversation. And what joy, what rapture, what blessed tidings of providence that I can now, with one word to Dr. Collins, bring about both the undoing of Noah and your wretched mother. Are you threatening to narc me out, you fuck? I'm not threatening anything. I'm simply stating that I could, if I wanted, bring ruin upon you. However, I suppose my lips could be sealed for a price. I want this apartment back for the remainder of the semester and for next semester. Kevin, I said, are you so pathetic, so joyless, that you would blackmail someone for an apartment? It's more than the apartment. It's what was taken from me when I graduated. Don't you all understand? No, of course you don't. I'm not like you all. Okay, I don't fornicate. I don't imbibe. I do not smoke reefer. I have no vice to my name, and therefore was always shunned in this modern-day Sodom slash Gomorrah that is a college campus. People didn't find me enjoyable, or naturally pleasant to be around, but when I had this apartment, I was someone. And then I graduated. I moved back in with Mother and the Steamador, and had it not been for the promise of graduate school, I don't know how I'd ever have survived. I will have that apartment back so that I can have another chance here, a shot at being the boy that I never was when I went here the first time. I intend to get my PhD and then promptly apply to teach here, first as an associate professor and then in a tenured position, move up the ranks, join the administration, and by 45, I'll be running Windler University. And then... And only then will I be in a social position respectable enough to the odious women of our generation that finally I shall lose my virginity. Wow, said Jess. That is really sad. Is it? Yes, I said. Noah, do you feel that it's sad? Or do you think that now, given what I know, that I could have my apartment back? 214, if you don't get out of my apartment right now, you're going to be sleeping on the fitness center floor tonight, and believe me, that's a promise. Well, said Kevin, I can see that you are all choosing to engage in naughties. This cannot stand. I'll be reporting you now. I believe Dr. Collins should be at home, so if there's no objections... Oh, come off it, I said. Kevin... It's not like you're going to go down to the village, knock on his door at nine at night and try to... But as I said this, I realized that was exactly something Kevin would do. He must have seen it in my face that I'd realized it because he smiled and said, I'll be seeing you folks. Toodaloo. I poked my head out, watched him as he started slowly and cautiously down the stairs. Jess and I looked at Noah, and Noah very calmly stood and stretched himself and said... I think 
This time, I might kill him. We started down the stairs after him, walking slowly and nonchalantly so as not to draw any suspicion. He was outside, standing on the freshly fallen snow and ice, looking up into the lights of the building. We opened the door and stepped out after him, and he began to trudge off again. Quicker this time, a little more panicked. We took off running after him, and I will say this for Kevin, he's a quick one. He has those long, gangly runner's legs, you know, and I suppose that a lifetime of fucking around probably prepared him for the inevitability that one day he would have to find out. We almost had him a couple times. Down by the library, Jess sprang out from behind a column and attempted to tackle him, but Kevin ducked out of the way just in time and managed to send her spiraling over the ice and into a snowbank. Another time, I had almost caught up to him by the stairs that led down to Northernmost Quad, but that little fucker got on his back and slid downhill in the snow, which is something that shouldn't be done, by the way, because a lot of people get hurt doing that, but Kevin was surprisingly nimble. Help me, Kevin was shouting, wrongdoing, perfidy, misbehavior. We chased him through the village for about two minutes until at last we came to Dr. Collins's house. Kevin began banging on the door. Sir, sir, let me in. There's mischief about. A light switched on in the bedroom upstairs. Dr. Collins opened the window. Rutherford, he said. Sir, it's me. Let me in. Ah. Oh. Oh, one second. You and your disruptions. We were almost upon him. Could have dragged him away from the door. Could have pulled him back away from the house. And I really don't know what then. But we could have done something. But before we could reach him, the door opened. And Dr. Collins stepped out, saw him, saw us, and said, Well, this is certainly an unexpected pleasure. I'm not in the custom of entertaining students in nocturnal hours. Sir, said Kevin, I have big news. A confession. He looked at Noah. This is your last chance, rapscallion. Will you tell him or shall I? Oh, forget it, said Noah. You know, I never said this, Kevin, but you smell like you sleep with a body pillow. Kevin turned back to Dr. Collins and said, very well. (sighs) I'm going to enjoy this. Sir, I was having dinner in my room when I overheard this squalid little piglet telling these other two villains that he and Dr. Ballard in psychology were the ones who dismantled the oil well. I heard it with my own two ears and well, you know me. I don't take wrongdoings lying down, so I came down here to let you know. I only think that it's right that you arrest Noah Trent and Jane Ballard for crimes against the school and expel William Hughes and Jessica Bradford and give me my old apartment back. Dr. Collins looked at us, looked at Kevin. Do you know, Rutherford, he said, you were very loyal as an RA. You did a lot of fine squealing, but I'm tired and quite frankly bored of being polite. In fact, Trent is quite right. You do smell as if you sleep with a body pillow. But sir, I don't have time for your games. This is a very bad look, I must say. I mean, come on. If you told me that Bradford did it or Hughes, I might believe you. The two of them are always on about something. No offense. But Trent, Trent is a famous milk toast. No offense, Trent. 
None taken, said Noah. Thank you, sir. See, said Dr. Collins. Do you see what I mean? I insulted the boy to his face, and he thanked me for it. He's not going to destroy an oil well. I mean, look at him. He looks as if he's never swung a hammer in his born life. And as for Jane Ballard, she's a head case, sure, but... In the psychological profile we took of her, we determined that any rage she holds would be a suicidal inclination towards self-destruction directed inward. Inward, not outward. Inward. I'm sorry, Kevin. There's a reason we profile people. It's not a parlor game. We do what we do so we can be prepared for such cases. And stats don't lie. It's not Jane Ballard. And it's not Noah Trent. But... Sir, I should add, we profiled you when you became an RA a few years ago. Would you like me to start announcing all the things we found about you? Like your tendency towards adult bedwetting, or your predilection for solo naughty time? Or would you like instead to get the hell off of my porch? But, 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 but nothing, Kevin. Kevin looked at us. And then he let out a long, wailing yell and began to stomp his feet and said, You liars and meanies are so mean to me! And then, looking down at Dr. Collins's concrete doorstep, he said, Well, 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 look here. I imagine what I can do to you after I do this! And then he curled his hand into a fist and slammed it down against the frozen concrete. There was this... Horrible, sickly, cracking sound, and it did not come from the ice. Kevin held up his hand, his fingers bent in wild directions. Some of them were turning purple. He let out a sickly, keening sound and fell over on the snow. Owie, 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 oh, all I see is red. Well then, said Dr. Collins, I suppose if you were to learn anything at Windler, you should learn this. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Rutherford, you're on academic probation. Get the hell off my lawn. But, sir... Butts, said Collins, are for sitting, so sit on it. He then turned to us and said, You three look cold. Come inside and I'll make us some toddies. So Dr. Collins led us into the living room and made us some hot toddies. I suppose graduate school has done terrible things to Rutherford's head. It's a pity. He really did used to be such an upstanding young man. But regardless, don't worry, Trent. I don't suspect you. You have a sterling disciplinary record and the behavior and temperance of a zoo panda. Oh, you may cause chaos from time to time, but never of your own accord. And it is, quite frankly, adorable to watch. Also, I know that you don't plan to breed, so the metaphor is apt. I mean, really, I do like you. You cause so few problems, kick up such a small amount of racket, I can always count on you to- I did it, said Noah. Jess and I both turned to look at him. Noah, said Jess. Uh, hey buddy, what are you doing? I- I did it. I Dr. Ballard and I both took sledgehammers and we both destroyed it, but it was my idea originally. I did it. Dr. Collins stared at him for a moment, and then he began laughing. Oh, a very good jest, Trent, a very, very good jest. No, I mean it, sir. I had the idea months ago. You really are too much. And I liked how it felt. And if you rebuild it, I'm going to do it again. That's a promise. No, stop, I told him. It's not funny anymore. No, it's not. It's hilarious. Oh, 
Good heavens. Thank you, Trent. I appreciated it. The fact is, I haven't had time for jokes in such a very long time. I've spent this semester trying to drum up the money to fill in that wretched sinkhole, and I've almost got it. How did you do that? I asked. Well, in point of fact, Hughes, it was no easy feat. The Yuli Endowment Fund came and went on some much-needed building maintenance and giving the squash team some much-needed new rackets. We have a squash team? Jess asked. Oh my heavens, yes. Students come from all over the world to squash for us. You all should go to a match sometime. It's not as boring as it is. So how did you get the money? Jess asked. Oh, Bradford, you'll think less of me if I tell you. Oh, probably not. Oh, very, very well. If you must know, I've been sleeping with the trustees to get more money. You what? I asked. Yes, every night for the past month, sometimes two or three a night if I can manage it, and bear in mind many of them live out of state, so I pop some Turkish amphetamines, put on a diaper, and drive off to meet them. I've been sleeping with the trustees, it had to be done to protect my beloved Windler, but I won't say I didn't enjoy it, although it has ruined any chances that I had with reconciling with Janine, and, well, needless to say, Mother must never know of it. Whenever they come over, I give her laudanum just to knock her out for a bit. And it has worked like gangbusters. We're almost at pit-filling capacity. Are we? I suppose that's good. A light came on upstairs. There was the sound of footsteps in the hall. Eddie Bear, came a woman's voice. Speaking of which, said Collins, I suppose I'm being corralled back to the bed front. I would love to entertain you students further, but affairs of the school and whatnot... A middle-aged woman appeared at the top of the stairs. She seemed almost to slink, and I realized that I recognized her. Well, said Ms. Vi, this is a pleasant surprise. I believe I know you little critters. What y'all doing here? Hello, Ms. Vi, said Noah. Noah Bear, she said. Long time no see. I heard about you. I heard you like an aged woman. <laughs> Why didn't you think to give Mama Vi a call? I guess I forgot your number. Well, she said, I'll see to it that you get it. And then she grabbed Dr. Collins by the shirt collar and said, And you, teddy bear, you better get your cute little butt back up these stairs because <laughs> if you're going to get your tip, well, I'm going to need to get mine. We took our leave then. Kevin was still there outside, collapsed in the snow, nursing his broken and swollen hand, Noah bent down over him and whispered in his ear and said, Don't bother coming back to the dorm. I'm having your stuff put out on the lawn tonight. Kevin said nothing, just whimpered. And as Jess and Noah walked on, I stayed back a little, took off my heavy coat and draped it around Kevin. What are you doing? he asked me. I don't know, I said. Probably too much. Anyway, good night to you. Take your fucking coat back. I don't want it. It's probably got diseases. Well, I don't want you to fucking freeze to death, I said. And then I sighed, because I couldn't believe what I was about to say, and I said, if you would like, I could drive you to the hospital. No, my hand is fine. Oh, really? Clench your fingers for me? Kevin looked up at me, twitched his fingers slightly, and then bit down on his lip to stifle a scream. It's fine. They're just stiff. I'll tell you what. 
my grandmother is staying with my mom tonight, and there's a bed in my dorm that's free. Why don't you crash with me tonight? Absolutely not. I won't. I, I, I don't know what kind of a game you're playing at here, but I do you seriously think that I'm going to hurt you? It's what I would do, said Kevin, and I can't imagine anyone else doing any different. You make me very sad, I told him. Keep the coat. Also, not that you can clench your fingers, but if you can't get your pinky and your thumb on your good hand to touch, that probably means that you're dying of hypothermia. Food for thought. What about your coat? Keep it, I said. But he took the coat off and threw it back at me and said, take it. I spit your pity back at you. I don't want it. No one pities Kevin Louise Rutherford. Nobody! This said, he slammed his ruined hand against the ground and let out a high shriek. And I tossed the coat over him and started back up towards the hill as he went on whimpering. And we got back to the apartment and slammed the door shut. It was late. We were all exhausted. Well, said Noah, I'm going to call facilities and have Kevin's stuff dragged to the curb. Maybe you should do that in the morning, I said. It's late. Noah sighed, I know. But I'm feisty and fired up. Just looked around the apartment and said, Where's Frank? What? Frank. He was asleep on the couch when I last saw him. Where is Frank? It was true. Frank was gone. And it was then that we noticed something else. One of the windows had been broken. We looked out. In the distance, we saw two figures fleeing across the snow. Oh my god, said Jess. It must be the Von Crumps. The inbreds have our bird! What does that even mean? Noah asked. But before anyone could answer, Jess was already out the door. We ran down the stairs as quickly as we could. No need to be sneaky this time. It was snowing heavily. There were these big, angry flakes with ice in them and high, chilling winds whipping against us, making it hard to see. The Von Crumps were just slight figures ahead of us. And then... There was a thudding sound. Jess had slipped and fallen on the ice and now lay sprawled out on the ground, moaning. We both stopped. Well, she said, keep going after them. Don't let them get away. I kept running as fast as I could, but I'm built for short bursts, not distance. I reached the end of the residential quad and there was a fork in the road which led in one direction towards the academic quad and in another toward the parking lot. I could no longer see which way the Von Crumps had fled. I ran towards the parking lot, but when I got there, I found only a silent row of snowed-in cars. They were gone. And so was Frank. I slowly made my way back through the snow towards them. Jess had leaned up against Noah. She looked pained. Why did you turn back? she asked. Why did you stop? I lost them, Jess. I'm so, so sorry. I lost them. She just looked at me for a minute. And there was this expression that I had never seen on Jess's face before. It was this look of pure disbelief and pure pain. It was a look of hopelessness. And then slowly, she let go of Noah's shoulder and sagged to the ground and began to cry. Well, it wasn't a cry, really. It was more like a weep or a keen. Jess, are you okay? Just this one thing, she said. I just needed this one thing. Jess, I said. It's okay, it really... No, it's not! Will, 
this was supposed to be the thing that I... I just really needed this to work. I needed this win, Will. Well, okay, remember what we talked about, all right? Validation and... Oh, validate my balls, she said. Oh, wait, you can't, because they're not there. I have nothing to validate. And then she went on crying for a bit. They're gonna kill him. I'm never gonna see him again, and he was a good bird. He never did anything wrong. He used to come and cuddle, and he was a good little birdie, and now he's dead, and it's my fault. It's not your fault, said Noah. It's mine, really. It's not anyone's fault. It's the fucking Von Crumps. It's their fault. Jess laid down in the snow, and to my surprise, Noah laid down next to her. What do you want? she asked. Well, as a residential advisor, I thought maybe I could give you some residential advice. Or at the very least, help you out. There's nothing you can do, she said. I just want to lay here. Can I pat your back? he asked. If you want. So Noah reached his hand down and patted Jess on the back while she went on crying and shivering in the snow. I looked at them for a moment. I wanted to join them. Instead, I took out my phone and Jess said, What now? I'm calling my mom, I said. To what end, Will? What's she gonna do? Blow something up? Hit something with a sledgehammer? I don't know. But I'm out of ideas. I was. I really was. But all I could remember was all the times freshman year that I used to call her when I was stuck like this. So I dialed her number. It was after 10, but she picked up. Will, is everything okay? No, I said. No, everything's not okay. I need you and Dean's help with something. Will, do you know what time it is? I do, and I'm sorry, but it's really important. Please. What's wrong? So I explained to my mother the night's events, and at the end of it she sighed and said, Okay. Tomorrow morning we'll go over there. I don't have a class till 1.20. So it was agreed that the next day me and Jess and Noah and Mom and Dean would all go down to the Von Crump house and try and get Frank back. What if they cook him tonight, Jess said. They could be killing him right now. They could, my mother agreed, and we're going to have to risk that, because I've already flossed for the evening. Noah walked Jess back to her dorm. I texted Eric to let him know what had happened, and he was gone when I showed up to the room. I was alone. For the first time the entire semester, I was alone in my own room. Well, almost alone. Dolores was curled up on my bed like a little cinnamon bun when I got in. Her one eye opened sleepily as I shut the door, and she stretched herself out. I stripped down to my underwear and got in bed with her, and she curled up against me, and I put my hand on her little tummy just to feel her breathing. She was an old cat. She'd had two previous owners, one of whom had surrendered her because he couldn't afford to pay for her eye infection meds, and she'd lost the eye. And sometimes she went through bouts of poor health, but... That night she was alive and breathing and safe on the bed, and I kissed her little peanut head. You're very important to me, I told her, and she began to purr, and I fell asleep listening. The morning dawned bright and clear, and my mother pulled up outside my dorm. Dean was in the passenger seat, holding tightly to a box of donuts. He handed one to me. Lemon jelly, he said. 
Thanks, Dean, I said, and then he reached across the seat to give me a messy hug. We picked up Jess and Noah. Jess received a blueberry donut to cure your blues, and Noah received a powdered sugar donut because he's flaky and messy. And off we drove. I still had the Von Crump's address saved on my phone, and we arrived about 40 minutes later. Their house jutted out against the pall of the sky and seemed almost to be crowned with night sky and lightning, even in the middle of the bright blue day. Stay here, said my mother. And then she and Dean got out of the car and made their way up to the house. They stopped at the main gate for a moment, and then it swung aside and let them in. Mom motioned for us to follow, and we approached the door. It creaked open as we stepped up to the porch. Beatrix appeared in the entryway and said, Well, 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 if it isn't the children, I had a feeling you'd be running back to our home one of these days, and you brought friends, how splendiferous. Please do come in. We followed Beatrix inside the house, and she led us into the sitting parlor, where Ambrose sat, staring into the fire, combing his mustache. Ambrose, said Beatrix, the children have come a-knocking. The children, from the school, Ambrose, you remember them, our rude little dinner guests. Oh, yes, said Ambrose. Children, what gives you the nerve to come crawling back to our household this day? We're not here to bother you, Jess said. We just want Frank back and we'll go. Frank, said Ambrose. My dear girl, I think you're mistaken. There's no one here named Frank. It's a commoner's name. Of course, said Beatrix. There is Cousin Francis, but he's tied up in the cellar for his own protection. And from the hall there was a... Really, said Jess. So what was that? That is a seagull. Contemptible creatures, really. Anyway, out you go, children. This visit has been lovely, but I'm sure you have scholastics to attend to. We're not going anywhere, said Noah. You creeps broke into my apartment last night. You broke my window. Who is this little piglet? Beatrice asked. He looks as though he has some fine meat on his bones. Do you not think so, Ambrose? Oh, I'd say... Brazed, he could do very well, said Ambrose. And then he took off one of his shoes, out of which he took a hundred-dollar bill, balled it up, and tossed it to Noah. For the window. Now, sir, said Dean, that's very considerate, but the kids here allege that you stole their pet dodo bird to cook, and, well, pardon my accusations, but that didn't sound like any seagull I've ever heard. Who is this? Beatrix asked. Who are you? I am Dean. And I, said my mother, am Dr. Jane Ballard, professor of psychology at Windler University, and I don't much relish... Ah, yes, said Ambrose. Coldwell talks so fondly of you. Your name is not unknown to us. Pleasure to meet you, children. I'm 49 years old, said my mother. Children, please, said Ambrose. No more disruptions. It may or may not be true that we pilfered your bird for to cook for our supper. If we did, we had every right to. You had till the end of the semester. That time has run out. Almost, but not quite, I said. Jess and I are actually delivering our final presentation on Frank today. 
Are you? said Beatrix. Well, well, cutting it a little close. I'll make you a wager, I said. Come and see our presentation today. Bring Frank. If we are able to wow you, we get Frank back. And if not, you can eat him in front of us. Not the best deal, I'll admit, but it was the only one I thought I could strike. Oh, said Beatrix. Ambrose, you know, I do simply love a wager. As do I, said Ambrose. All right, very well, children. My wife and I will be there this afternoon with your bird, if we do happen to have him, that is, and if you can astound us, you may have him back. But be warned, children, we are most difficult to astound. I offered Ambrose my hand. He reached into his pocket, took out a glove, put it on, and shook. And then he took the glove off, threw it into the fire, and sprayed his hand with disinfectant. And so it was that me and Jess found ourselves backstage in the Marston Hall Auditorium. Marston Hall is a big circular building right next to the library and freshman dorms. It's basically one lecture stage and some seats. Occasionally it's used for concerts or even theater performances, but to the best of my knowledge it has never once been used for teaching purposes the entire time I have been at Windler. But it does have a large projection screen and is therefore perfect for showing film. Dr. Gelpie waited with us backstage as Jess hyperventilated into a paper bag, saying, What if I can't do this? What if this sucks and everyone hates it and everyone thinks I'm a fraud as a filmmaker, but it's too late to turn back? Listen to me, Jess, said Dr. Gelpie. That's not going to happen. I'll admit I was a little frustrated when you jumped ship from anthropology to go and do film, but I'll tell you, this film that you made is worth showing. Do you really think so? I do, Dr. Gelpie told her. I do too, I said. And I want you both to know, said Dr. Gelpie, it has been a pleasure to advise you both this semester. A pleasure. And it had been a pleasure to be advised by him. Truthfully, I don't think what we did could reasonably be called anthropology. But then again, anthropology is the study of people, so maybe anything a person does is anthropology. I don't know. And it's true that we didn't write a paper or conduct a study. No, early on, we had decided to do something a little bit more propagandistic. We had made a film, and I think we were proud of it. I peeked my head out, and I saw the Von Krumps sitting front row center, both with scowls on their faces. Ambrose held Frank in a pet carrier on his lap, Caldwell von Crump sat next to them, and I vaguely remembered that he was going to start teaching here next semester. I also noticed Noah, and Mom, and Eric, and Olivia, and Maxine, which was mostly comforting except for the fact that Maxine is a tough critic. The lights dimmed. Dr. Gelpie stepped out onto the stage to introduce us. It was a very kind and flattering speech. Short. And then we stepped out and made our presentation. It occurs to me now, as I speak these words, that I've mentioned all semester that me and Jess had been working on this project, but I've never really told you what it was we were doing. It was this. Early on, we had come to the conclusion that defending the existence of the dodo bird, a creature so baffling and meaningless that evolution was quick to write them out of the story, would be an impossible task. 
We had tried brainstorming research papers, we had tried thinking about experiments we could run, but ultimately the best idea we could come up with was the weapon of sentimentality. Sentimentality is like catnip to the American people. They can't get enough of it. And so it was that with the blessing of the hospital staff, we had taken Frank to the Crawford Memorial Hospital and allowed him to play with patients. We had taken him to a nursing home and allowed him to play with the residents. We had signed all the necessary paperwork and gotten consent to film every single patient and resident that appeared in the film. We had done our homework. Dr. Gelpi had helped us, of course, but in the end, every single legal, moral, or ethical question was thought of, addressed, and taken into careful consideration. The film only ran about 20 minutes. 20 minutes of Frank interacting with cancer patients and injured kids and aged adults. We had interviewed the staff and the residents and the patients about what it was like having Frank there, and all of them seemed to be in agreement that he was an asset. It was reported by the hospital staff that Frank seemed to ease patient anxiety, that the kids in the hospital had especially liked him, even if they thought that he was just a really ugly duck. And a few of the kids had even read stories to him, and... He seemed to enjoy that very much. In the nursing homes, it had been reported that on days when Frank visited, residents were shown to be more social, more outgoing, and even reported feeling lower levels of physical pain in some cases. As one Mrs. Edith Kranz put it, I sure do like that funny little chicken you kids bring around. The film flickered and then went out. I looked over at Jess. She was crying again. But this time there was a large, almost triumphant smile on her face, and I put my arm around her shoulder, and she rested her head against mine. You did amazing, I whispered to her. I looked out into the audience. Ambrose and Beatrix had stood up. They were walking towards the door, but before I could even process anything, I had leapt from the stage and ran after them. Where are you both going? I asked. Away, said Beatrix. This wretched picture show has wasted a good chunk of our day. But we had a deal, I said. Yes, said Ambrose. I did warn you, children, that it would be very hard to impress us. I mean, come on now, you didn't really suppose, I mean, really suppose that my wife and I would indulge you to actually take the bird back. I'm very sorry, children, but this bird will be roasted and served to us in a most pleasant cook of on this very après midi. As a matter of fact, said a voice behind us, it will not. It was Dr. Collins. He was standing by the door, blocking their exit. Children, said Beatrix, please get out of the way. This rather poorly behaved child struck a deal with us. As did I, said Dr. Collins. Earlier this semester, I made a deal with you both that if Hughes and Bradford could create an independent research project that brought a suitable amount of distinction to the school, then I would not allow you to take the bird with you. And I don't know what manner of Faustian bargain young Hughes struck up with you, but he had no right to do so without my say. That dodo bird is university property, and if you don't return it to me immediately, I will have you both removed from this campus in a trice. Remove us, said Beatrix. Oh, children, how very droll, as if you would ever dare to remove such prestigious alumni. I would have no qualms, in fact, said Dr. Collins, about reporting you as trespassers. 
I do wonder how it happened that you have the bird in your possession in the first place, considering that I believe Hughes and Bradford have kept him in their dorm rooms all semester. Shall we perhaps engage in that line of questioning, or would you like to hand the bird to me? The Von Krumps stared at each other. I never did like you, Collins, said Ambrose. You'll bring ruin to this school. One, said Collins. Two. Ambrose handed him the pet carrier, and then with a loud harumph, they pushed past Collins and stepped out into the snow. Collins handed Frank back to me. I can't believe you just did that, I told him. Oh, come now, Hughes. I know you may not have the highest opinion of old Daddy C. I know I'm a lot of things. A scoundrel, a roustabout, and quite recently a harlot. But I am a man of my word. And so are you, I know. Thank you, sir. And I know you've never, ever lied to me, Hughes. Mm-hmm, not even once. Well then... I believe you. Good day, Hughes. Excellent work and whatnot. Very proud to have students such as yourself. And then he was gone. Before we left, Dr. Whalen from biology pulled us both aside and said, Come with me. I want to talk to you both. So we followed her to her lab in the bio building. Frank came with us, and she set him down on the table and began to examine him. <coughs> he said, Yes, yes, squawk. What is this about, Doc? I asked. I thought you both should know. Jess, you'll recall you brought the bird in the other day for an examination, you remember? I do, said Jess. And I told you that I had to keep it overnight for tests? Yes. Well, that was both true and false. Yes, I did have to keep the bird, but it wasn't for tests. It was because I noticed it was behaving strangely. Is he sick? I asked. Not sick, William. This bird was expecting... Expecting, I asked. Dr. Whalen gestured to the corner of the room. Go and look, she said. We did. In the corner of the room, on a counter, there sat an incubator, inside of which there were two yellow-brown eggs, each the size of a throwing shot. He laid those? Jess asked. She laid those, said Dr. Whalen. Yes. I can't believe neither of you ever thought to check for a cloaca. I mean, come on. Bad science, but... Still, yes. But that's not the shocking part. These eggs are fertilized. Ferti- How? I don't know. I don't know how it's possible, but they're fertilized. Well, so... so what, what, what does that mean? It means that if either of these little fuckers are a male... Congratulations, kids. We brought the dodo bird back from extinction. So, chew on that over winter break. We both looked down at Frank, who was currently trying to eat a pencil eraser. She looked up at us. <coughs> Finals crept on. That week, the most wonderful thing happened. As you can expect, with the dining halls charging double rates, students had run out of money very quickly, all but the seniors who had chosen to cook in their own apartments. But those last two weeks, a wonderful thing happened. Seniors showed up en masse to the dining halls with full meal plans to donate swipes to the rest of us. We ate three square meals for the first time in weeks in those days. It was wonderful. 
Two days before the end of finals, Dr. Collins filled in the sinkhole. His nocturnal activities had generated enough income that he was able to hire a construction crew. They filled it in overnight, and the next morning, those of us still on campus gathered around to witness a ribbon-cutting ceremony. "'Students,' he said, "'my beloved Windler family, allow me to welcome you back to your new and improved student union.' Heloise hadn't trusted him to handle the giant ceremonial scissors by himself, so she herself cut the ribbon. The blades went smicker-smack, and then she stepped out of the way to welcome us. I went up to the mailroom for the first time the entire semester. In my mailbox, there was a slip of paper saying that my building was overdue for a carbon monoxide inspection, and that I should alert facilities if I started to feel woozy at any point this semester. I came back downstairs and joined Chess, Noah, Olivia, Max, and Eric in getting our first cups of coffee from the cafe since the sinkhole had emerged, and so it was we sat at one of the large tables that faced out onto the back courtyard and watched the snow fall, and we caught up. You know what's crazy, said Noah? I feel like we haven't been together as a group this entire semester. I know, said Olivia, it's been so busy. I feel like I haven't done anything, I said. I've just gone to class, studied, watched Hulu, rinse, repeat. That's good, said Jess. Well, that's what a semester of college should be like. I've got an idea, said Max. Let's all go around and say one thing we did this semester that we're proud of. Well, I'll go first, said Olivia. Uh, Max is psychic now. Psychic? I asked. Yeah, it happened a few weeks ago, said Maxine. The space monster threw up a bunch of magical bile on me, and now I can see everything that's happening or will happen in the near future within a 15-mile radius all at once. It's kind of like peripheral vision. Speaking of which, Noah, stand up and move out of the way of the table. So Noah stood up and stepped a few feet away from the table and said, What's wrong? But before Maxine could answer, a piece of ceiling tile fell down and landed on his chair. "'Oh,' he said. "'Thank you.' "'Is it annoying?' Eric asked. "'To see things like that?' "'It can be,' said Max. "'Plus, at first I thought I was going to die of radiation poisoning, "'but mostly it's just a thing I can do. "'It's like how some people see those little floating squigglies. "'I like it.' "'Well, I'll say something, too,' said Olivia. "'I made Dean's List for my third consecutive semester.' "'Congratulations,' said Jess. "'Thank you. "'What about you, Jess? "'Did you do anything fun?' Jess smiled, turned to Eric. Eric turned to her, and the two of them kissed. Olivia said, "'When did that happen?' "'Uh, I don't know,' said Jess. "'About a month ago, I think. It just sort of happened. I was down in the cinema house one night, and he came in because he was doing set design for a friend, and we got to talking, and, um, yeah. "'It's been fun,' said Eric. "'Well, you seem very happy,' Noah said. "'I am. What about you, Noah?' Um, the other day I went for a long drive, just for the sake of taking a long drive, and it felt good. What about you, Will? Oh, <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know if I should say. What? said Noah. Dude, come on. Okay, fine. So back in October... Noah, there was a night where you texted me and asked if I wanted to do dinner, and I said no, because Jess and I were working that night, but... That was actually a lie. And what I was actually doing was hooking up with this girl I met at a party. You were? Eric asked. Yeah. Who? I'm not going to say. Oh, come on, said Jess. Well, it's a safe space here. 
uh, fine. It was it was Shauna David in chemistry. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, we met at a party, and I mean, it's not a big deal. We just hooked up a couple times, and but I don't know. I had never just like gone and hooked up with someone before. You know, it was it was nice. Do you still talk? Olivia asked. Uh, I wished her a happy birthday on Facebook. Dirty boys, Jess. Good for you, Will. I love to see you having fun. And it was at that moment that my mother, grandmother, and Dean joined us. Well, said my mother. Jess, congratulations. That was beautiful. I cried twice, said Dean. It was okay, said my grandmother. Would you three like to join us, I asked. And they did. We remained there for a while. My mother said that she had graded her last term paper and was about to head home for the semester, and would I like to come with her? I decided that I wanted to stay another day. Kevin came up to the table about ten minutes later. His right hand was bandaged, and he handed me my coat. William, he said. Kevin, I just wanted to thank you for the coat. It was very considerate of you not to allow me to freeze to death. You're welcome, Kevin, I told him. I won't forget it, he said. And then he wandered off. I turned to Noah. I want you to be nicer to him next semester. But Will, he sucks. Noah, we all know that, but come on. New semester, second chance, okay? Fine, I will. No, I said. I will. You Noah. And Dean laughed at that and said, I'll have to remember that one. That was a good one. And it was at that moment that we were joined by Dr. Collins and Heloise. Hello, students, faculty, and visitors, he said. I see we're all wassailing to celebrate this fine hivernal day. Dr. Collins, said Jess, thank you so much for getting this place open back up. It looks amazing. Oh, no bother, Bradford. It was a joy and a half. The only thing is, I have a sneaking suspicion I need to get tested for the SIF, and I'm about $20 short. I reached into my pocket and took out my wallet. I think I might be able to help with that, I said. I took a 20 out of my wallet. Here. Consider it a good turn. He took the bill and smiled. You never cease to delight, Hughes. You never cease to delight. And to my mother, he said, Jane, I'll see you next semester. You should be very proud of this young man. My mother smiled at me. Always, she said. And Dr. Collins turned to go. But before Heloise could follow, Jess stood and tapped her on the shoulder. Heloise? Um, I just wanted to say, I am sorry I got so shitty with you this semester, and thank you for everything with the whole Ms. Vi situation, and what Ms. Vi situation, said Heloise. Jess, I'm afraid I don't have the faintest clue what you're talking about. And then she smiled and said, but have a great break, all of you. We watched her go. Around us, the student union sprang back to life. Heroes by David Bowie filled the air from the radio station, and outside I watched as three freshmen laid down on the lawn and began to make snow angels. Dryland was created by, written by, and performed by Adam Frost Venrick as Will Hughes. Each episode is produced through the Z Theatre Company. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next time for more Dryland. <laughs>